This is a Together Church podcast, a place to explore meaning, friendship, and faith in Jesus. We'd love you to connect with our community. Find out more at togetherchurch.com.au. So we've been running a sermon series for the last, well, nearly a few months called A Life Well Lived. And it's been a series about life and discipleship and about how to live well in the way of Jesus. And uh, look, last week I talked about the importance of hearing and following God and hearing his voice and looking for kairos moments. Now, kairos is a Greek word for time, uh, if you weren't here last week, and particularly a Greek word that means a moment in time, a time time of significance, a time of importance, and that if we pay attention to these moments that God's kingdom, heaven, can break through to, to our current reality and transform the way we live. And this is an image I talked about last fortnight, that as we experience Kairos moments, it's like we're walking through our life, which is the arrow, and then suddenly we hit a cross, which is the Kairos, the Kairos moment. And uh, we believe that in those moments, God says, the time has come, the Kairos has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, change your mind and believe the good news. And as we change our mind and change our actions, he can transform our lives. I asked a number of people, I asked us or invited us to look for Kairos moments last fortnight. Did people have a look for a Kairos? Did anyone hand up? Anyone experience a Kairos, see something? Yeah, a few hands. (laughs) Very small hands. Okay. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Shy, I won't make you share. Okay, okay, excellent. But look, a Kairos can be an individual experience or a personal moment, which is what I talked about last fortnight. But it can also be a collective moment. It can be a moment that shapes our history. It can be a moment that uh, impacts our story. And if we reflect on these moments together as a culture, as a community, then they can have significance for us and they can traject us uh, into a new reality. So look, I've obviously been thinking and praying and talking a lot about, uh, or thinking and reflecting on this moment. And there is a cultural moment happening right now, a tremor in our society uh, with COVID-19 or the coronavirus. And... Uh, And it's a cultural kairos moment, a moment of significance where God can speak to us. So over the last three weeks or more, I've been really reflecting. uh, God has been stirring me to speak, to to take a diversion from our our sermon series and to actually address the coronavirus more specifically. And it's called a contagious love. And I want to talk about uh, how to love and live in faith in in a very fearful world. Look, it's interesting. God's been stirring this in me for at least three weeks and it's consumed a lot of my time and thinking. And uh, I'm not normally the guy who worries about the media cycle. You know, I'm normally the person that says, oh, everyone gets so stressed, just take a chill pill and everything's going to be fine. But there's something that I think God has been stirring within me in my spirit over the last month. And obviously things have progressed over time. And so I've been asking God and others, you know, what might God be saying of us in this cultural Kairos moment? And what might we need to do about it in response as faithful, loving apprentices of Jesus? Uh, Is that okay? This is what we're going to talk about. And um, it it has honestly been the hardest talk I think I've ever given. Well, I haven't given it yet. Preparing. (laughs) And uh, I've revised it a ridiculous amounts of time. Um, I thought I nailed it three days ago and then with all the new information that came out and with prayer and listening to science and 
and discussing this with my leaders, I'm like, no, I have to change it again because it's a moving target. So uh, what I speak on today may be irrelevant tomorrow, but hopefully it won't be. But I have put a lot of thought into speaking, and I believe this is not just a prophetic talk for today, but I actually wonder if it's a bit of a prophetic message for us as churches, and I'd like to speak into that at this time. Uh, I suppose a prophetic message that we also need to pay attention to this moment and stand up and maybe wake up a little bit, but then also respond in faith and love and grace. So, look, there is a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of concern right now. And my, my heart is not to fuel this in any way, shape or form. Okay? I believe that while this is a moment of significance and while we need to pay attention, it's a, it's a moment of joy and, and potential for us. So I don't want to emphasize fear. I actually believe that this is a moment where we, as we listen to the Spirit of God, can be at our best and not at our worst as a people of God and that we can learn to be wise and to love each other uh, with a contagious love, which is just beautiful. Uh, so look, unless you have been uh, living in a cave, uh, you will have heard about COVID-19 and the coronavirus. Uh, there's a lot of fear, there's a bit of misinformation, there is a lot of unknowns, which is why it's a moving target. And I'm not an epidemiologist, okay? So I'm, I'm say that right from the beginning, and I certainly don't have expert or extra knowledge that you don't have. Uh, but this is what I've picked up, just as a bit of a run-through. So um, the coronavirus, it's a new virus. It started in China late last year, hence the 19 part of it, 2019, in the city of Wuhan. And uh, corona means crown, which is what these little suckers look like under the microscope. And the official name is COVID-19. So uh, COVID-19 passes from person to person through coughing and through sneezing. So it is airborne through droplets and uh, it can be contagious up to two metres uh, in that way. But the, uh, the, I suppose the big contagion happens through contaminated surfaces. You know, these little things kind of drop on surfaces and they can survive for up to two to three days is what our current knowledge is right now. So you touch a door handle and then you can get sick, which is why it's very contagious. Uh, so look, for children, there are a few kids here. You know, you guys are actually really safe. Um, kids actually seem to not get very sick with this thing, but they can carry it and they do pass it on, which is where there's some problems. Even most of us here, you know, youngish, healthy people, you know, most of us experience symptoms a bit more like the flu, but uh, not everyone, but certainly in the elderly, once you are sicker, if you're immunocompromised, it really is quite a serious virus. And we're finding out more about it each day. Uh, so it's certainly not deadly in the way that, um, as deadly as SARS or MERS or Ebola, which are kind of previous or viruses which we didn't experience in Australia but it is highly infectious and it does spread like the flu uh, and we are seeing outbreaks in multiple places all around the world now so this is not stuff that's new I imagine but look the the WHO the World Health Organization has now called uh, the coronavirus a pandemic and a pandemic means it starts slow and then it exponentially increases and this is what it's looking like right now in a very short period of time and look in terms of mortality rates uh, we're still trying to get our head around this, but it's about 3 to 4% of people who contract it, uh, but not across the globe. It varies in age groups. But it's, um, it's moderately dangerous in this sense. Uh, and, and in particular, it varies from country to country based on largely human factors, actually. So what I mean by that is that um, if you have a sophisticated health system, if you are prepared as a health system, as a culture, uh, if the government responds really quickly and wisely, and if there's a cultural response, uh, in other words, the, the culture of the people decide to do what the government says, as opposed to not, then it will change the outcome. We know this. 
And so there are two strategies in terms of managing the virus. There's containment and there's mitigation. So you start with containment, which is basically about identifying people who are at risk, maybe have come overseas, uh, and then isolating those cases and preventing them. Very welcome. You're very welcome. <laughs> preventing community transmission. And the second part, if that containment strategy ceases to work, is mitigation. And mitigation is where we stop hanging out together and we stop interacting as humans closely. And uh, the term given for this you would have heard is social distancing. Yeah, you've heard this in the news, I'm sure. And so this is where we are now. We are moving beyond containment, particularly in most states of Australia, and we're moving into mitigation. And that means that sporting events and big events are stopping. We've heard this in the news, Formula One, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this is why there's talk about shutting down schools, businesses, gyms, clubs, which is all temporary, but it's going to be a significant, it's a significant thing, right, to, to shut down our interaction with one another. And so look, social distancing, it works. Okay, these are the stats about the virus. Now, what we see here in China, okay, in all these regions, all these colourful lines at the bottom are the Chinese provinces where the virus began. This is the epi it was the epicentre of the virus. Uh, but with strong containment strategies and social distancing, the virus was controlled, the healthcare centres started to survive and, and it stopped being a blip. Western countries were not seeing the same thing. Uh, South Korea, Italy, uh, Iran, we're seeing significant spikes all at the same time, which is where the health system can't cope. It's where the mortality rate increases and you have all these problems because it's too much, too fast, and it's uncontrolled. Okay, this, this is bad news, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll get happier. Is that okay? I promise we'll get happier. If, if, you take, if you take the little, you can't see it, but in the bottom uh, right-hand corner, there's a blip happening, okay? And this is what that blip is. Uh, and this is France, Germany, Spain, Japan, US, etc. Now, Japan is actually containing it, not as well as China, but they're containing it. Whereas if you look at France and Germany, they are already shutting down everything and they're going to have to shut down faster and more rapidly. Uh, America is very close and we are not that far behind in some states of Australia. Um, so this is like the bad news that, that we are yet to contain this virus and we are to the point where in these countries it's like we have to distance ourselves socially which obviously impacts us significantly. <sighs> so look, my heart, I really mean this, my heart is not to scare us but it is to inform us. Now I'd rather be informed than to say everything's great and then surprise us. Is that okay? And I'm not planning to leave us here. You know, Tasmania is actually in a good place at the moment in many ways. We are behind the bell curve or ahead of it. Well, I don't know. We're, we, have, we have few cases and we don't have evidence yet of community transmission, which is where the community passes it from one stage to the next. You know, interestingly, uh, the, WHO, the World Health Organization said today that China is no longer the epicenter of the virus, it's Europe. So uh, Beijing has closed its borders to coming, people coming in because they want to stop the virus from hitting their shores which is interesting, we just have to pay attention. That was meant to be the good news. So Tassie <laughs> is behind the curve and, uh, and that's good. And so look, my, we still are in a good place. And my emphasis for the rest of the talk is about how we respond in faith and, and trying to listen to the spirit of God about what God is saying, not just what the stats are saying. Um, and yet I wanted to start with this because there is a preparedness needed for us as a church community. And look, I really hope I'm wrong, 
but I do suspect we are a Western country and I suspect that we are going to respond more like Western countries. And, uh, and I suspect that in the near future we will see schools and public spaces closed and that will involve church communities as soon as the government needs this to happen. Yeah? And that obviously will impact how we do life together, which is why I feel it's so important to speak today. Um, I read, uh, I found this, well, Kylie found this, my dear wife, who actually gives me all this cool stuff from Facebook, uh, found this and uh, she, it, it spoke to me. It says, dear everybody, <laughs> I like that, since I've not pastored people through a pandemic before, I don't know all the answers, but I'm uh, paying attention to science and paying, I can't read from there, and praying for wisdom. Together we'll take courage, be patient, consider the least of these and press onward while loving our neighbours. Uh, love your pastor. P.S. Wash your hands. <laughs> and look, I really resonate with that because I don't know the answers and I, this is new to me and I'm sure this is new to you. It's a hard place for us, but it's a hard place we want to tackle together and there's some great hope that can happen. And I think if we can acknowledge what's happening uh, and acknowledge that while this is a heavy topic and there's fear, then I think we can move forward and I actually believe we actually really have a wonderful opportunity to respond as the people of God. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what it means to live out our faith in a time of pandemic in a bold, courageous and loving way, which is absolutely possible. While a global pandemic is a new experience for me, I haven't passed it in a pandemic and you haven't been through one in the Western world, it's not a new experience for God's people, which is really encouraging. Our apprentices of Jesus have lived through pandemic after pandemic for a long time and we have not only survived, we've absolutely thrived through these and I want to talk about this. So God uses times of trouble to strengthen his people and for us to strengthen the, the wider community at large. And so I want us to remember our stories and to look back in our history and to uh, reflect on this cultural moment so that we can bless others. And my heart is that we will be able to guide others as we do. So um, in many ways, we need to go back in order to look forwards. And that's part of what I've been praying about and reflecting on and reading and researching on. So let's go back to ancient Rome to the first 400 years after Jesus rose from the dead and discover the rise of the early church. And so I'm going to draw really heavily at this on the beginning of this from an author called Rodney Stark, the book, The Rise of Christianity. And now he's a professor in sociology and also an expert in comparative religion. So he wasn't a Christian when he wrote this. I think he is now, but um, it's an exceptional book. And it's about how from a non-believers perspective, uh, the church grew in the first 400 years. And uh, as a secular psychologist, a sociologist, I apologize, Stark in this book, he discounts miracles. He says, let's discount the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's discount the hand of God in birthing the early church, which is why I think it's quite fascinating. And, and what he says is let's use historical data and archeological evidence to uh, form a compelling argument for how on earth this tiny band of Christians basically took over the greatest empire that has ever been in a very, very short period of time. And so in Stark's analysis, it wasn't miracles, it wasn't the hand of God that led to the explosive multiplication of Christianity. He concludes, looking at all this stuff, that it was the contagious love of apprentices of Jesus who followed their rabbi. I knew I'd cry. Now, ah, so we know that God birthed the church. 
We've looked in the book of Acts. We know the records of the early church in terms of miracles. That miracles still happen today and we've seen revivals today. So I'm not discounting that personally. But what's fascinating is that behind these miracles, God is at work doing amazing things. And one miracle that happened, which Stark actually picks up on, and he actually says it was a miracle in a different type of way, is that Christians had a contagious love that looked radically different than their pagan neighbours. They blessed others they reached out in times of trouble at great cost to themselves and they transformed the Roman world because of that. So this is a map of the Roman Empire in AD 170, uh, 117 when the church was very, very much in its infancy. Uh, it's a massive empire. It goes from Italy, Macedonia, which is like ancient uh, Greece. It goes through Asia Minor, Spain, Syria, North Africa, Alexandria. It's, it's huge. And this is where Jesus was born and this is where the early church grew. Now, Rome was all about power, it was about military might, it was about strength through use of the sword. That's how it became so big. And wherever the Roman armies went, they subjugated the peoples of the time and they forced them to adhere to the social and religious customs of Rome. So what you see here is a spread of not just the Roman Empire, but the Roman religion, which is paganism. Uh, that's the official name for the Roman religion. And it was an elaborate system of worship and temples and sacrifices and superstitions that was based on a pantheon of gods. Uh, and so you had Christianity at the time, and it was really just a tiny handful of disciples from an unknown sect in the backwaters of the empire, uh, surrounded by this global religious system called paganism. And so on the one hand, really, you had this massive empire. You know, Caesar was a god and they worshipped him. Uh, and everyone saw it. And then you had this hidden group of people uh, fishermen, tax collectors, slaves, who believed that a man, a rabbi, who was condemned to death on a Roman cross as a criminal, rose from the dead. And somehow that little band of people ended up overcoming the empire. It's an unlikely story, and I think it's amazing that Rodney Stark picked up on it. So, pop quiz. In AD 100, uh, according to Rodney Stark and the sociological findings, how many Christians existed across a Roman empire? Just to add a guess, I know this is going to be hard. Anyone? 2,000? 5,000. You're pretty close. So the conservative estimate, and it is a conservative one, is less than 8,000 Christians across the Roman Empire. Okay, numbers flex up and down, but Stark says conservatively less than 8,000. So if we fast forward just 200 years, how many Christians existed across the Roman Empire at 310 AD, which is when Constantine finally made it legal to be a Christian? Any guesses? A million? 30 people? <laughs> 30,000? In 310 AD, conservatively, very conservative estimates, is more than a million Christians, which is definitely at least more than 25% of the Roman Empire. Oh, I can't do it. 10 million. Oh, it's... Yeah, 10 million. More than 10 million. Is that what I said? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm testing you. Ha <laughs> ha! This is how I keep you guys awake. All right, more than 10 million people, 25% uh, of the Roman Empire. Some people suggest up to 40%. And by 350 AD, more than 50% of the Roman Empire were Christians. What we see here is something absolutely remarkable, rapid, expansive, exponential growth. And you've got to remember, between 40 AD and 310 AD, it was illegal to be a Christian. At best, we were tolerated. At worst, we were persecuted brutally by the empire. 
There were no church buildings as we know them. People met in houses. There was no religious institution as we know it, no leadership the way we know it. Uh, they didn't have scriptures in the way that we know the Bible. They were a bunch of manuscripts and letters. And uh, we actually made it hard for people to join the church. You had to kind of go through an initiation and prove your worth before you could join. And yet somehow we go from less than 8,000 Christians to more than 10 million. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully you've seen that movie. So um, how, how did a religion that was illegal multiply so quickly across the empire? Let's look at this. Uh, this is Stark's analysis. Again, you, it starts off slow and then it grows very, very quickly. Notice something? <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting? There's something that looks very similar here. Uh, I won't put the two and two together, but yeah, there's, there's some type of contagion going on here. Early Christianity in the Roman Empire, these are Stark's, uh, Rodney Stark's stats based on the historical record. So in 100 AD, only 1% of the empire were apprentices of Jesus. By 350 AD, it was more than 50%, more than 33 million Christians. Okay? And he suggests many reasons in this book, and some are amazing, uh, for this growth. But one of the most important and key things is that Christians loved their neighbours radically during pandemics. That's his finding. So look at this, the massive growth between 150 and 200 AD was because of the first plague of Galen, which was a plague that hit most of the empire. And what you see here is that they grew, the Christians grew from 40,000 to more than 200,000 during a plague. Uh, and then later on, the second plague came. It was the second bout, but 250 to 380, it's this plague of Cyprian. And the church grew from 1 million Christians to 6 million Christians throughout that plague. What is happening? It defies logic. It is entirely upside down that during these plagues, when at least 25% of the entire population died, including the Christians, they multiplied and their numbers went up. Now, what I see here is something happened in times of crisis that the church, not only, I knew I'd do this, not only survived, but we absolutely thrived, which is incredible. And, uh, and this is a sociologist saying it happened, and I want to know why. So let's look at the plague of Galen around 165. It began when infected Roman troops came back from their campaigns in the Near East. And we don't know what caused the pandemic. We suspect it was smallpox or measles, which is an incredibly deadly disease at the time if you don't have vaccinations. Five million people died across the Roman Empire. Up to a quarter to a third of the entire population fell. It was a terrible, destructive plague. Uh, so put yourself into the shoes of an ordinary Roman citizen. Let's say a citizen of Rome. You live in a, hurt, a dirty, hot, noisy capital city, one of the greatest cities in the world. It is um, full of patrons and lawyers and blacksmiths, uh, beggars. Everyone is crowded together in a small space. And like most people in Rome, you worship a pantheon of gods and you burn incense to Caesar. You eat dedicated meat from the marketplace. You go to numerous temples and you do so in the hope that the gods, one of the gods, your chosen household god, will bless you and keep you safe. And then all of a sudden, something terrible happens and you can't explain it. The gods must be angry with Rome because all around people everywhere are falling sick and dying and no one knows why. And the city becomes full of panic. All the rich people, politicians, priests, uh, all the wealthiest families, they flee the city. Uh, the public baths are empty. The streets become empty. It becomes a ghost town and everyone's terrified. 
except for apprentices of Jesus. You see, instead of living in fear, the Christians stay and they find supernatural meaning and hope in their hardship. Uh, when the pagans get sick, what happened is they threw their people out onto the streets with no food, no shelter, and they were left alone. And they were shunned by their families, they were isolated and alone. When the Christians got sick, they cared for and nursed and sheltered their own, uh, even when they knew that they would likely become sick themselves. They acted entirely differently. In fact, not only this, Christians went around collecting pagans from the streets who had been thrown out from their own families, and they fed them, they nursed them, they cared for them to health at their own expense. And for some reason, these Christians didn't fear death, uh, and they behaved in a way that was illogical and in a way that was irrational, uh, as if the welfare of others was more important than the welfare of themselves. And as a result, they had this unmissable joy and this remarkable spirit and a contagious love. Now, do you think if you were a pagan at that time, you would notice? Do you think you would wonder why? Do you think you would question your own heart and soul? And this is exactly what happened. Let's read the quotes from the time. This is Dionysus, a bishop who wrote about the second plague of Cyprian. Uh, most, of our brothers, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed from this life serenely, and, uh, serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains. Death in this form seemed in every way equal to martyrdom. Isn't that remarkable? Again, Dionysus, he writes this. The heathen, uh, so the pagans, behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed their sufferers away, fled from their dearest and bought lots of toilet paper. Oh, no. Um, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt. So look, even if you find this kind of record a bit biased because it is a Christian bishop and uh, Rodney Stark testifies to this. Uh, consider a similar entry from a pagan author at the time. Uh, this quote comes from the Emperor Julian who was concerned about the annoying Galileans, so they are Christians, and the reputation that is a problem uh, in the empire. And he complained to his high priests that the Christians were meeting pagans' needs more than the pagans. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. They show benevolence, those annoying Christians, towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. So this is how Rodney Stark explains the explosive growth of the church. He says that when two plagues hit the Roman Empire, rather than live in fear, apprentices of Jesus walked in faith. They demonstrated a radical and contagious love for one another, not just for themselves, but for their community. And they did all they could to care for those who were in need. And as a result, a far greater percentage of Christians actually survived the plague because basic nursing, food and love, as well as the miracles of God, allowed more of them to survive physically through times of trial while the pagans perished. And on top of this, thousands of people turned to Jesus and his church because of the bravery, kindness and love of his people because they saw something in the believers that was different. Yeah. And interestingly, and this is a nice 
bonus, the Christians were more immune the second time round, which is why they exploded in growth, because they overcame the virus and therefore were immune. And that looked like a miracle. So let's pause for a moment. This was meant to be the not too heavy. No, it gets less heavy, hopefully. Uh, what is one thing that stands out to you about the contagious love of the early church? Just pause and reflect in silence. So when I read that account from Stark, I, I asked the question, why, why did the early church love their neighbours? Why did they act the way they did in the face of death? It's a, it's a genuine question, yeah? Why would they act that way? And I believe it returns to being a disciple, which is firmly back on the ground that we were speaking before in a life well lived. It was because they were Mathetes, they were followers of the rabbi from Israel. And a, a disciple, remember, from last few sermons is a disciple is someone who hears God's word and puts it into practice and remember we've been going through a number of principles that apply in all generations that show us what it means to be an apprentice a disciple of Christ look at these number one die to self principle number one I mean that's what the church did they followed Jesus example principle number two which we went through learn through imitation they copied the, the person, the man who welcomed outcasts, who loved lepers and who gave his life as a ransom to many. Principle number three, they listened to the voice of God. They heard what he was saying through the scriptures and through revelation and they followed in obedience. And they practiced his words and therefore they had their house on the rock. Good, someone listened last fortnight. And it transformed the known world. Uh, so look, what were, so it wasn't, what were the words of Jesus? What were they reading? What were they imitating? What were they copying? Uh, I love these. There's so many, I, I had to pull these back because there are just so many scriptures. Okay, this is 1 John 3.16. This is how we have loved, uh, discovered love's reality. Jesus sacrificed his life for us. Because of this great love, we should be willing to lay down our lives for one another. It obviously was relevant, yeah? Yeah. Uh, Revelation 23, 23.11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the blood of the lamb is the sacrificed lamb who is Jesus. They triumphed because of the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Same thing. These are Jesus' words in Matthew 25.35-40. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Truly I say to you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. And then again in John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And this is the key, love one another. This is what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. Uh, and this is what they did. Last quote, um, ancient quote, Tertullian, writing around the times of the great plagues, wrote that love was normative for Christians. It is our care of the helpless and practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Oh, look, they say, look how they love one another. It is the secret to us walking through this as a community. And it's a beautiful reminder of what we are like at our best.
But it wasn't just the words of Jesus. Remember, a disciple follows the words, the ways, and the, the works. They imitate Christ and his life and look at what they imitated. There was a person who walked the dirty Palestinian streets and went up and touched those who no one else would touch, who had been pushed out onto the streets and um, isolated. They had compassion on those who were struck with the bacterium of leprosy uh, and people uh, who needed emotional and physical and spiritual healing. This is what we see in Luke's Gospel. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. There was no hand sanitizer, no modern medicine. Jesus took a risk and he loved people. Uh, in John's gospel, we see him serving and demonstrating love again. Uh, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave his world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example, imitation, that you should do as I have done. Again, it's the same thing. The church were imitating the one who poured out his life for us. And obviously the last thing, the main story, the key imagination, the, the thing we celebrate every communion and that the church has always done is that Jesus gave his life for us on a Roman cross. Uh, rather than running from death, he made himself vulnerable for us. He defeated evil and allowed himself to be broken. Whoever wants to be my disciples, Jesus said, if you want to be my apprentices, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. It's what Jesus taught and it's how he lived. And I believe that in this Kairos moment, we need to pay attention again to God's word as a people. And that will allow us to bless those around us in special ways. Rather than the power of Rome, which was about might and fear, we follow this person. Yeah? And that's why we look different. On the inside and often on the out. So before I get to the application in our day and our time, which is where it's been really hard for me, <laughs> just pause for a moment and reflect. Is your life shaped by the imagination of the empire of the world or is it shaped by the imagination of a man on the cross? The bit that many people are interested in, so what? <laughs> what on earth, that's all right, what on earth does this have to do with our day and our time? And how can we take what we see in history, what we see in scripture, and actually come up with a wise and faithful response in a brand new day? I may be wrong here, but I've been praying and trying to listen to the Spirit of God to work out what is our Kairos moment and what do we do about it. Now, there are similarities in our day to the past, but there are a lot of differences. You know, the coronavirus, back to, the, back to COVID-19, it's not smallpox, it's not the measles, it has a different response, it's less dangerous, it's, it's a different virus. Uh, we have modern medicine, we understand how to protect ourselves from viruses, uh, we understand how to create vaccines, we understand uh, how to care for the sick until they recover. We are in a very different world. 
Yeah? Uh, and our cities are cleaner, our systems are more refined and advanced, and there is actually very little need for us to care for the sick in our own homes. In fact, that might be counterproductive and probably would be, uh, to a certain extent. There are hospitals, doctors, trained professionals who do this stuff really, really well. And this is the culture we live in. And we don't want to change that. I'm really thankful for that. Yeah? And there's a few doctors and nurses and medical people amongst us, so we need to pray for them. So there are lots of differences, but there are also some similarities. You know, when I look at the news, uh, it's also happy. <laughs> and it makes me fearful. Coronavirus, you know, ASX plunges, Italy death toll increases, Sydney schools close. Like, it's just so dramatic. I mean, and it's, it's serious, but gosh, it's just... There's this like culture of fear that is just overwhelming us from what I see. And in that place of worry and anxiety and uncertainty, we're asking the question, where is God? What does this mean? How can I be safe? We're not that different in many ways either. You know, like if I'm honest, I run a small business. I'm only part time as a pastor and my business is in real trouble. You know, I've got one week of work left. And I'm just like many others. This is what it means. It's going to mean a lot of changes for healthcare workers. It's going to mean a lot of changes financially for people. Uh, we are going to need to back each other and support each other and care for each other uh, in times of trouble. And I've felt very concerned about it. But at the same time, I followed Jesus. And as part of the church, we are not called to be worried like the pagans. I can be alert and thoughtful about what my financial situation might be, but I am not to be worried like the pagans because I have faith in someone way bigger than me, way bigger than a pandemic. And we are not to be paralyzed by fear and we are not to behave like those who have no God. You follow? Okay. We are not to behave in greedy and self-interested ways. We are to love our neighbour and to have more concern for them than ourselves. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who knows us and who will protect us. God will protect me. God will protect us. And we have a God who keeps us safe in times of trouble. And we have a God who walks with us both in hard times and dark times. I know that is true. We know this is true, yeah? Yeah. It's about knowing it here. But it is true. And we have a God who promises us abundant life in this world and in the world to come, no matter what happens to us. Uh, and as a result, we have a mission to love others in the way that Jesus loved us. And we can do this. So in terms of our response, this is what I believe God is saying to us as a community. There's three things. I believe that God is saying that we need to have faith and not fear. I believe that God is saying that we need to learn to be an even more loving, courageous and authentic community. And I believe that God is saying that we are to love with a courageous love which makes us stand out from our neighbours. Not because we have to, but because God first loved us. There's a difference. So let me talk about these and this is, this is where I want to finish. Um, faith, not fear. There are a lot of people who are fearful in our community and this will only change. This will increase. I can guarantee that, okay? And we have a role to reduce fear and to be non-anxious people who know that God is with us. Uh, and faith happens when we look at ourselves. Faith happens when we look at the world around us 
as opposed to looking up at the one who created everything in heaven and on earth. And across Australia, we are already seeing people doing irrational and fearful things and acting out of self-interest. Uh, you know, most notably is the great uh, toilet paper run of 2020. You know, one, one lady, and we've seen this, all right? One lady, it's fascinating, okay? One lady stacking supermarket trolleys full of stuff was asked, what are you doing? And she said, I don't know, others are doing it, so I thought I should get some toilet paper too. <laughs> this is a few weeks ago, you know, maybe there's more reason now, but this is well before we needed it. That's a fear response. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we shouldn't go out and get some extra supplies. We have some extra rice, because, gee, I'm, I'm half Chinese, I couldn't live without rice. Um, uh, we got some extra rice and we got some extra toilet paper. But, but hopefully that's not a selfish response. It's not driven by fear. Actually, we didn't get toilet paper. Hopefully it's not a fear response. You know, I'm not saying it's not wise to just get a bit extra. But there's a very different motivation, isn't there? Thinking about your neighbour versus yourself and how might we actually use that to bless others? How might we actually cook for people instead of it just being for ourselves? Uh, and on that note, everyone stand up, please, because I, I knew this was going to be a long talk. I apologise. We are going to have a uh, bit of a... Well, this stuff's gold, basically, and you, this may be the only place in Tasmania where you can get these things. So uh, it's, it's a bit like the wedding, you know, so whoever can get the toilet paper first... Uh, all right, and last one. Who's the lucky winner? Who's the lucky winner? You can do it. I can see your hands in the back. Oh, he's got two. All right, so at least if, if, you, if you're running out of loo paper, uh, you may sit down. And if anyone seriously... If, yeah, Michael grabbed two or three. If anyone is seriously in uh, need of loo paper, I actually have more. You're very welcome to get some. Uh, okay. Now, where was I? You're not going to concentrate on anything now. So, look, basically, um, Matthew says this. When the book of, sorry, the book of Matthew, Jesus says this. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 31 to 33. Uh, and it's a prophecy, really, about toilet paper. Uh, do, not what, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wipe with? Uh, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Revised Daniel Version. Revised Daniel Version. <laughs> uh, basically, we should trust in God, tell him what we need, and have faith that he will provide all that we need. Uh, so really the question I have is, do we put our trust in God, or do we put our trust in toilet paper? It's a ridiculous question, but you know, it has some significance. You know, do we put our trust in his provision and have faith that as a community we will be able to respond to our needs or do we actually store up our treasures on earth, keep them for ourselves and hide? Yeah, we don't have to do that. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, uh, but I, I don't believe we have to be afraid. And I was afraid. I had an honest moment with God last week and... And I felt unsettled for weeks, especially preparing this sermon. I just dived into this topic. And I, I just had an honest moment. I said to God, actually, I'm actually really scared. I actually feel really afraid. And that's okay. I'm not saying it's not okay to feel afraid, but take it to God. And as I took it to God and said, God, I actually feel scared, then I turned my worries into prayers. And that is the response of the apprentice of Jesus. So, look, Jesus is the antidote to fear, and in Jesus we have hope. And I've, I've got here in my notes that we can get vaccinated from the worries of the world. 
It's cheesier when I read it like this, but anyway. <laughs> but basically we do have an advocate and we have a Lord who will protect us in times of trouble. And so let's have faith. Can we do that? Okay. The second, uh, the second thing is that I believe God is saying that we need to be an authentic community. Now I have a dad, he lives in Hong Kong, uh, he's Chinese, and he went back to live you know, at the place of his birth to retire. And you know, Hong Kong is really quite a different place at the moment than Australia, and it has been for a while since this outbreak. So everyone, he tells me, on the streets is wearing a mask, like there is no one who's not. And all schools have closed, they've been closed for a long time. Uh, people have self-isolated for many, many months and are living indoors in high-rise units. And look, for my dad, his biggest frustration is that he doesn't get to play mahjong anymore, which is why he went to Hong Kong in the first place, uh, which is, you know, a gambling card game. He's really into it. But it's also his recreation. It's his form of community. It's really his only form of community. And, uh, and it struck me that, you know, he's now at home, bored, watching YouTube videos and occasionally leaves the house with a mask on to get one ton. And he's been doing that for months. You know, it's just a different reality than I'm living, yeah? And I suppose I just thought, you know, I think of my dad and I think there are people all around the world right now who are doing the same thing. We are withdrawing, we're being called for good reasons actually to isolate ourselves from human contact. And we're asked for good reasons to uh, distance ourselves from other humans. And I actually believe these are critical steps for us to slow down the response. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But at the same time, uh, it calls for a faith response because it impacts a lot of people. And it's going to impact people we love, people we care for, people we know. Uh, so the question I have is, how do we love vulnerable people? Uh, how do we love and support those who feel isolated or afraid or anxious or alone who actually have no social supports when they have to isolate themselves from one another? And how do we love them and give them hope and pour our faith into them in times of trouble? The key question really is this, what does it mean to love? You know, that's the question I've been brewing on. This is the title. What does contagious love look like in our context? Because there is no doubt we are called to love like Jesus loved, like the early church loved. But what does it look like? And I've rested with it for weeks and weeks. And I may, I'm not saying this is the right answer because it may change in a few weeks. I don't know. But right now, this is the best I can come up with listening to God. And I believe there's two things. One, to love others as Jesus loved us we need to distance ourselves we need to distance ourselves physically from other people as a community I'm going to talk about this in a minute it is a very different response than I thought I'd come up with but that's my conclusion firstly to love others we need to distance ourselves physically and secondly to love others we need to deepen our connections with one another and with our community using more creative means like digital technology I want to talk about this. And our leaders have been talking about this. This isn't just me. Uh, so in terms of the first one, how do we love by distancing ourselves from people? Such a strange idea. And I've wrestled with it because it is very counterintuitive to love people by not seeing people. Yeah? You know, I mean, together church. We are called together church. <laughs> We're about community. We eat together. We pray together. We learn and we serve together. And we build communities who eat together constantly, who are in and out of each other's lives. And that is our community. But I was speaking last night with our leaders. And Amy, who's a doctor and who's one of our leaders, there was a bit of a Kairos moment for me. And I said, um, it is so hard to know what the right thing to do. It is so hard to know what is the right thing to do. And she kind of leaned forwards with her lovely face and said, it is not hard, it's emotional. 
It's actually not hard to know what we should do. It's just emotional. And that really struck me, thank you, Ames, that if we love one another, and if we know that sacrificing face-to-face gatherings for a short amount of time means that we can save people's lives in this group and people we may not even know, then that is a response that Jesus would want us to do. It is a sacrifice for us to not be in face-to-face community, particularly us, because we're together church. But I wonder if that's the type of sacrifice we may need to make for a time to love others as we love ourselves, because we know it works. Does that make sense? It's a challenging thing. And I may not be right. I'd love not to be, but this is the best I can come up with. Okay? And so we made a hard decision last night as a leadership team, and this will be our last service for a few months until we get over this risk of spike and we can control this pandemic as a community. If we can't do that, people will die and our health centres will not cope. And it's not what we need to do. I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Is that okay? And so I realise as well that, I mean, I say this with a heavy heart, but I realise that we are ahead of the curve in terms of churches on this. Our next service isn't, it's not for three weeks anyway, given our rhythm, but in three weeks' time, I believe every single church will be asking these questions. I would be surprised if Easter goes ahead in most of our congregations anyway. So while we're ahead of the curve, it's partly because of our rhythm, but partly because I think the Spirit of God is speaking to us about this stuff. And, you know, we did, we did joke last night, you know, what if we're wrong and I, we are make, I am making a completely ridiculous misstep? And it may be true, but gee, I'd be, I'd be thankful if that was true. And we'll just say, whoopsie, ignore that sermon, we'll just delete that from the podcast. <laughs> Let's go for the fourth part of the series. (laughs) So I hope that's true. So please forgive us if we made a mistake, but we're trying to love like Jesus loved, and so we're um, we're going to postpone services, which is a big deal for a church, isn't it? And it's really hard for us as well. In terms of little church, what does that look like? We're not quite sure, but what we've talked about so far is we still think we need to lower the risk because eventually we're still meeting in in groups of people touching lots of stuff with lots of kids and all it takes is one person to have the virus for us to all pass it on. And so um, we believe that what we can do is we're going we're gonna to meet next week, but possibly in a different format. The missional community leaders are going to look at creating smaller and agile units. So what we're going to do is we're going to get into groups of two or three families. Uh, we're going to find social supports and make sure every single person has support. And we're going to break into those communities and find new ways of doing this. At first, face-to-face just once, and then we're going online. Okay, and, and this is temporary. This is only for a time. Okay, I really want to emphasise, this is not what we're looking at long term. Uh, we plan to create these groups and, and love one another. Uh, so the second thing though, so I said on the one hand we need to distance ourselves. On the other hand, we actually need to deepen our love for one another and increase our connection. And I know that sounds completely counterintuitive. I actually believe this is our moment. I actually believe this is our time and I believe that something amazing can happen in the next few months because of this. What I mean by that is we can be, we are a creative and we are an adaptive and we are an incredibly innovative community. It's not the same with all communities. We can change and we can adapt and I actually believe that God can use us like the churches of old to help multiply 
the love of Christ in a new way. So look, there are a few things we came up with. Firstly, I had a little bit of an idea, it might be a NAF name, but I like it. It was in the shower yesterday, Hope Groups. Uh, because we need to provide hope in a world where everyone is fearful. And so we're going to create hope groups and they will come out of our missional communities and out of our church. And I reckon we'll get groups of you know, five or six people together in a hope group so that everyone has connection. Uh, we'll meet at least weekly using online technology. This is Zoom and most of us, all the leaders know how to use this and many of us do. We already use it for leadership huddles and a whole lot of other things. Uh, and so we're going to get together 1.5 hours each and it'll be a bit like a discovery Bible study group. So we'll say, what are we thankful for? What's been a challenge? Read a scripture of hope from the life of Jesus. We'll pray together and we'll work out practically how do we bless other people outside of ourselves. And I actually believe this has a chance of multiplying because we can invite our friends who are worried. You don't have to be an apprentice of Jesus to be in this group. I've got heaps of people I could see in, that I could invite if, they're, if we're isolated and let's create community for our community. <laughs> Even if it's a little bit different and a bit more creative. I think we can do that. And I think we can do it really well. And as a part of those hope groups, we'll finish by saying, how can we practically bless others? And what I mean by that is, how do we flow what happens online to offline? You know, do we need to give our last roll of toilet paper out to a friend or a last pastor to a friend in need? Do we encourage each other with a text? Do we cook a meal for each other? Do we give money if people need it? Do we run errands? You know, there's got to be heaps of stuff that we can do to help people. Let's use these groups to activate the love of Christ in and around ourselves. And we can pray like mad to change the atmosphere from fear to faith. And so I don't know exactly what the groups look like, but that's kind of a bit of the imagination. And we're going to set up everyone who wants to be involved this week. We'll give them the tech support, we'll create the groups, and we'll support leaders in these groups to run them. Uh, and we would love you to invite your unchurched friends. Is that okay? All right. We're making this stuff up on the run. We're also going to run a prayer meeting at least once a week. I'll lead that and I'll provide uh, support and also maybe some prophetic words or some insights that God's been speaking. Uh, and this could be everyone. We can get you know, hundreds of people on one of these Zoom groups and we can uh, have a short conversation. We will pray together and encourage each other. So the first one will be this Thursday at 7.45 p.m. And if you're interested, please log on. And I just want to use it as a space for us to process this because I know this is a big, long talk, but we're going to have lots of questions and we're going to learn from your questions as well. Uh, the next thing is WhatsApp. We already have WhatsApp groups. Many of us are connected, but it's a great way to connect and to chatter and to hear from each other day by day. It's a closed social media network and it's a great way to tell jokes, to share prayer requests, to support each other, to send videos. So we'll set up one big group. So anyone in Together Church who wants to connect in will be in this big group and we'll all talk daily through this big group. And then we'll create small groups based on our relational networks. Okay, if you don't know how to use WhatsApp, we will help you set it up in the next week uh, if you want to be involved. The last thing is leadership meetings that we will continue to... Oh, this is the best picture I could get in a hurry. We're going to meet weekly and we'll be adaptive and we'll make up stuff on the run, but we'll also listen to God as we go. So I can't promise you it's all going to look... We don't know what it will look like, but how cool is that? It's a bit of an adventure. This is actually going to be a really fun thing to do and see, gosh, what on earth will happen as we seek to respond in love to what Jesus is doing. And so look, that's, that's, that's our vision, that we will strengthen the bonds of our church, not weaken them that bizarrely by going offline and inviting more people who don't know Jesus, we can actually multiply the community of faith. And when we come back here, let's sing the, sing the roof off this place 
and just have an amazing celebration because we will be back here in three months, in six months, I don't know when, but when we come back, it'll be great. And we will be stronger and we will be more faithful and we will be um, better as a result of this experience. We need a bigger room. I hope we need a bigger room. Yeah. And I hope that maybe we can support other churches who need to go through this right now as well. Keep in touch. I have a bunch of... Oh, yeah, even Jesus is signing up. How cool is that? Although he told me not to give his email address away. Sorry. So, so we have a bunch of handouts. Um, I've put them over on the table there. I'll put them around. But I would, even if you're a regular member and you know that we know your email address, please come and sign it off because it's just going to be a pain for Kai and I this week to try to find everyone's details. So I would love everyone who wants to connect and be part of this next few months to put their name down on the sheets. And, uh, and then we will connect you with WhatsApp, we'll help you with Zoom, we'll phone you individually. We're going to make sure every single person is supported if you want to be part of this. And hopefully we will all thrive as a result of that. Okay, final point. Come on, everyone stretch, I'll give you another toilet paper. I've got, two min- I've got five minutes left and then we're done. I know this is the longest talk I'll ever do, but I had too much and everyone gets toilet paper. Um, actually, can I, actually, if I see anyone... If I see anyone scalping these on the streets and selling them to $2,000 a roll, I will not be happy. All right. Okay, so let's finish with the contagious love. So we've said we should live by faith, not fear. We're going to be an authentic community who meets offline and then online. And the last thing is let's love contagiously. Let's love contagiously like Jesus loved. Let's love contagiously like the early church loved. And let's love contagiously like Jesus has always called his disciples to love. I'm going to finish with a beautiful story that I read in the news this week about the response of the underground church in Wuhan, in China, where the outbreak began. And a New York Times correspondent, Chris Buckley, who was trapped in Wuhan, reported on the behaviours that he saw. And he said in a tweet that despite feeling like an apocalypse, he was surprised to encounter Christians handing out masks with John 3.16 scriptures attached. (laughs) How cool is that? How fast and how creative and agile is that? We can be our best. He said that the underground church has mobilised in response to the pandemic. They they have donated 30,000 face masks to people on the streets. They have provided gloves and protective goggles to the Wuhan Central Hospital who ran out because corrupt officials wouldn't hand them over. The church supplied what the, what the community needed and they assisted the sick in their homes and they have been doing so since January when hospitals ran out of beds. There is a point where we have to care for people in homes but it's not right now. And using social media, they encouraged and practically supported isolated people who were suffering. How cool is that? Doesn't that sound familiar? So the article concluded that Christians in Wuhan are living proof of the best qualities of humanity. This is a news article. They offer us a glimmer of hope in this world full of suffering and paranoia towards the epidemic and their composure and efficiency as well as their love and strength stem from their faith. They stem... They stem from their faith and, and we, we can do this as God's people and we can stand up and we can be the people of God. I truly believe that this is our moment. I, I believe that this is a moment, our Kairos moment and we can be the church again in this world which has forgotten about Jesus. 
This is our moment. It sounds strange, but it is. And we can stand up and do this. And we can look to Jesus and not look to the world and we can love one another contagiously and this world will change and we will change. Because when the world falls apart, it's when the church always stands up and it's when the church always flourishes and this is a tremor that we can respond to. So as long as we look to Jesus and imitate his words and his works as apprentices, we will be fine. By this, Everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. So we will love radically, fearlessly, courageously and creatively and contagiously. And that is what we will do as a community over the next few months. So to summarize, let's be like Jesus. We will live with faith and not fear, be an authentic community and have contagious love. I've been thinking, can we do this? We actually can't, not in our strength, but God is with us. He is the miracle worker and we do walk with the spirit of God amongst us. So let's have communion. You know, this is, this is our symbol of love. It always has been. And on the night before he died, he said, take this bread and break it. And this is my body and it's broken for you. Uh, do this as a church, as apprentices of Jesus for the next 2,000 years in remembrance of me. And Jesus said, this is my, this is my um, blood and it's shed for you. It is shed for the sins of the world so you don't have to fear because there is nothing to fear because we follow Christ. Yeah? And we don't love because we have to. We love because Jesus first loved us and he gave his life as a ransom for many and so we are motivated by a new spirit that transforms us inside and out. So you don't have to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, You don't have to be baptised or confirmed in any church to come and share communion, but you do need to come and receive from Jesus uh, and receive his strength and his love and ask him the questions that you have on your heart for him. I feel really sad that we celebrate our first year anniversary and it's our last service, but we are more than a building. We are more than a box. We are the ecclesia, we are the people of God and we will mobilise as a result of this, okay? And we'll stay in contact and we will love contagiously. So um, we will be like our founder, we will be like the early church and we will be like the Christians in Wuhan. So Father God, we thank you that you are a God who shows us how to walk through good times and bad. Thank you that you will teach us how to bless those around us. And I pray that when we return, however long that be, that this room will be full and it will be full with people who have been blessed by your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.